As many of you know, Lorna's dad, before he retired, was a policeman. He looks like a policeman, doesn't he? I think that's maybe the reason why her family all love watching crime dramas. If there's ever a crime drama on the, phone, on the TV, they're always wanting to watch that. But of course, they're not alone in that. Anyone else like watching crime dramas? That kind of thing? Yeah, quite a few. Okay. There are hundreds of those kind of t- programs on TV. I don't know what it is that draws us into it, whether it's the, the kind of the, the, the mystery of it, the kind of trying to work it out, or whether it's just we like to see the guilty people getting what they deserve. But one of the longest running American TV series is this one here, Law and Order. It ran from 1990 right through until 2010. 20 years. And it was so popular that it, spend, it spawned four spin-off series in the US and even one in the UK, which was uh, very creatively named Law and Order UK. The thing that set that TV series apart from other crime dramas was it had a two-part approach. It followed both the New York City police as they investigated the crime, but they also followed the, the district attorney's office as they prosecuted the crime. So he went through, right from the crime, right through the investigation, the court case, and finally the verdict and the sentencing. But I think they stole the idea from the Bible. I think they stole the idea from Genesis chapter 3. Because as we've gone through that chapter, that's what we have seen. First of all, we saw Adam and Eve succumbing to the temptation to reach beyond their God-given role and commit that sin against God. Then we saw God investigating the crime, searching out, interrogating the suspects, although, of course, right along he knew their guilt. And then last time we looked at how God found them guilty and sentenced them to experience the consequences of their sin. And in many ways, our passage this morning is like the the final scene in that narrative, as you would look at in in a Law and Order series. As the two guilty people are led away to start their jail sentence. But there's a huge difference here compared to TV shows like Law and Order. Because even though God took on that role of investigating and prosecuting this crime, throughout it all, God shows his amazing grace. And we'll see that even at the end here. As God deals with that sin through punishing the guilty, there's also an amazing an amazing message of hope, of salvation for us through God's grace. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 3. Just write down the last little bit of it. Verse 20 down to verse 24. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Last week we saw Eve standing before God as he pronounced his judgment on her. God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Because of her rebellion again and sin against God, she would be forever impacted and disrupted by pain and suffering. But even although she was guilty, Even though she had acted directly against God's commands, amazingly, God hadn't given up on her. She would still have the joy of fulfilling her God-given role as the mother of the whole of the human race. And Adam seemingly understood this, and so he named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. Even although she'd played her part in bringing so much disaster and death into this world, she would have the the honour of being called Eve, or life, as Eve is translated. Because she would be used by God to bring so much life into this world. And I think there's a powerful illustration of the fact that no matter what happens, God's purposes will be fulfilled. Sin had invaded that world. Sin had invaded God's world. It had messed up, it had distorted the beauty and the majesty of what God had created. But sin and death and the devil would not stop God's purposes in this world. Proverbs 19 says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. God's will will always be done. His plan and his purpose will be fulfilled. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, God, Paul said that God's eternal purpose, his purpose was always this, that through the church, which is the, the collected people of God, the manifold wisdom of God should be known. That was God's purpose from all eternity. That his people would be a revelation and a declaration of how amazing their God truly is. God's plan was to build a church, to form a people who would reveal and declare his power and his majesty and his love And his grace. And no matter what happened. No matter what anybody did. This would become a reality. Because God's purpose always prevails. And for you and I, I think that should give us so much hope today. Jesus said, 
I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Satan and his forces of evil are savage in their attacks. This world continues to rebel against God and against God's will. People repeatedly choose to go their own way instead of God's. But Jesus will build his church. And God will be glorified. And nothing and no one can stop that from happening. So today we can rejoice. As if it's already happened. As if the end of God's story, as we read in the book of Revelation, has already occurred. Because no matter what happens, no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody tries to do, God's purpose will always prevail. Is that cause for rejoicing today? But this verse also shows, this verse in Genesis chapter 3, that God is willing to accomplish these purposes through broken people. Eve will become the mother of all of the living. Eve had messed up big time. She'd broken God's law. She turned away from God's plan. But God would not discard her. In his outrageous grace, he was still going to use this woman to accomplish his purpose in the world. He didn't need to. He's a sovereign Lord, the creator of the, the whole of this universe. He could have just started again. Got another lump of dirt and made another human race. But he didn't. Instead he took this woman, this broken woman, this woman stained by her sin and he worked through her to accomplish his purpose. And right throughout the Bible we see God doing this again and again and again. Through people like lying Abraham or laughing Sarah or cheating Jacob, or proud Joseph, or murdering Moses, or adulterous David, or denying Peter, or persecuting Paul, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Again and again, God uses people who make mistakes, who have chosen the wrong path, who have rebelled against his plan, who are broken, tainted, and just messed up. And he takes these people and he works his eternal purposes through them. In his grace. Now that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't matter. That is not an excuse for sinning and doing whatever we feel like. Eve's sin caused millions of people to suffer as a result of it. But it does mean that if we're here today and we're here as people who are broken, We're here as people who have messed up, who have made bad choices. And if asked for a show of hands, I hope all of our hands would go up, because we're all in that category. Then we can rejoice today that God wants to use us to accomplish his purposes. We are exactly the kinds of people that God wants to work through. People like you and me. In fact, that's why Jesus came. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Broken, messed up, rebellious, powerless, weak people like you and I. Jesus came for broken people to bring his saving grace and his healing power so that we could enter into life in all of its fullness. And then we could be used by God to bring life to a lost and a dying world. What an amazing God we have. God was still going to work through Adam and Eve. But of course they had a problem that needed to be dealt with. When they sinned, their eyes were opened. And they realised their physical and their spiritual nakedness. And so earlier in chapter 3, we, recognized, we saw how they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. But we, we saw this desperate attempt to hide from God and from each other who they had become. But we saw that they just couldn't cover up their sin with these homemade clothes. They just weren't good enough. Their sin still separated them from God. Their sin still separated them from each other. And it was a lesson to us that no matter how much we try, we cannot hide our sin from God. No amount of religious activity, or good works, or pious pretense, or ritual, or ceremony, or any other kind of do-it-yourself righteousness can ever work in making ourselves look good before God. Our only hope is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We need to come honestly before God. Come clean and ask for His grace. And that's the ultimate solution that Adam and Eve needed. But in His grace, God reached out to them and He gave them an immediate solution to their issue of nakedness. So verse 21 says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He gave them clothes made of animal skin so they would have proper coverings. But this was much more than just a pragmatic solution to their nakedness. This actually was a powerful statement of who they had become. Adam and Eve, they tried to make these homemade clothes to conceal who they had become. The fact that they'd sinned against God. But these God-given clothes, these God-made clothes, would confess who they had become. Every time they looked on these clothes, every time they they put them on, they would be reminded that they had to cover up because they were not who they were designed to be by God. That they were fallen people. And that's why God calls us to wear clothes today. I'm glad you all are agreeing with that. He tells us to dress modestly, with decency, with propriety. It shows that our acceptance of the fact that we are fallen short of the glory of God's original design for humanity. 
Our clothes show our acceptance of the fact that we are fallen and we are sinful and that we're not what we should have been. We're not like Adam and Eve as we were originally made. We've accepted the reality of that. But these animal skins were more than just a reminder of our sin. They were also a promise that God would one day provide clothes that would finally and fully cover sin. Listen to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So we maybe need to think of our, think to this morning, what are we wearing? What clothes are we wearing this morning? Have we come like Adam and Eve Dressed in our homemade clothes of self-righteousness. If we are, then we will fail pitifully to stand before a holy God. But if we've accepted these wonderful garments of salvation from God, that robe of righteousness that God alone can provide, then we will be able to stand in His holy presence. We will be able to delight in His love we'll be able to rejoice in his goodness. So what are we wearing this morning? But these garments of skin tell us a little bit more than that. They're not just a picture of God's gift of salvation. They're also a promise of a substitute. Because the clothes that God gave to Adam and Eve that day were incredibly costly. They were incredibly expensive. Because an animal had to die in order for these clothes to be made. The first death, first physical death in the Bible. Blood had to be shed. To cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, an innocent substitute had to die. And of course, if you know a bit of the Bible, you'll see that God repeated this lesson again and again through the Old Testament, through the sacrificial system at the tabernacle and the temple that he gave to the people of Israel. When he called them to, to kill an animal as a substitute for them, to bring them forgiveness. But none of these could finally or fully cover our sin. Hebrews chapter 10 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. But these clothes for Adam and Eve, and all of those animal sacrifices in the tabernacle and then in the temple, they were all pointing forward to the ultimate substitute for our sin. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus alone was sinless and holy, and yet on the cross, he willingly took our place. He willingly became our substitute. He accepted our sin. He suffered our punishment. And he died our death. And so if we have put our faith in Christ, we have trusted in what he has accomplished for us on the cross, then we are totally forgiven, completely free, declared right in God's presence, and for eternity, we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. (coughs) So this is what it means to be properly clothed this morning. This is what it means to have on your Sunday best. It's not about a suit. Sorry, Mum. It's not about having your good clothes on. It's not about a tie. Sorry, Tommy. (laughs) Having your Sunday best is about being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's the hope of salvation, isn't it? That's worth rejoicing in this morning. That's what God has done through Christ. But Adam and Eve didn't experience all of this. They didn't know the joy that we can share this morning. They stood guilty before God. And so, our chapter says, The Lord God banished Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The serpent had claimed that God had lied When he said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, Adam and Eve didn't physically die that day when they ate of that tree. They went on to live on the earth for many more years. But they did die that day. Because Jesus said that this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And on the day that Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they were separated from God. They were barred from his intimate presence. They were unable to commune with God anymore in the Garden of Eden. They spiritually died. And it's that spiritual death outside of Christ that we all share. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Every single one of us were dead. Or if we haven't trusted in Jesus yet, we are still dead. But even as God barred them from the garden that day, he was acting in love. Did you notice what God said in verse 22? That they must be kept away because Adam must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
If Adam and Eve had been allowed to stay in the garden, they would have eaten of that tree of life and they would have avoided physical death. But they would have lived forever in spiritual death. They would have lived forever cut off from God without any hope of salvation. That meant that Jesus couldn't have come and died on the cross to deliver us from sin. That would have meant there would be no hope for humanity. No way of salvation. No way back to God. Just an eternity on earth of separation from God. So in driving out Adam and Eve, God was also acting in mercy and grace. So that we could come into a relationship with him. And it's actually implied here, just in little hints, little clues in the details of what happened here. If you look at verse 24 again, it says, God placed on the east side of the garden, the east side of the garden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. These barred the way to the tree of life, but they also pointed forward to God's plan of salvation. Let me just explain that really quickly, okay? These, these things were placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Presumably because that was the entrance into the Garden of Eden. So it was enter, entered through the east side. Now for Moses and his original readers, this would have been deeply significant. Because God had ordered the tabernacle. The place of meeting with God to be entered from the east side. And then inside the tabernacle was an ornate lampstand of gold, which was structured like a tree with branches and flower-like cups and buds and blossoms. It provided light for the priests as they worked inside the tabernacle, but it also was a symbol probably of the tree of life. And instead of a a flaming sword going back and forth, the first piece of furniture in the tabernacle, as you walk through into the tabernacle, was the altar of burnt offering. Where fire, that symbol of God's judgment, would burn up animal sacrifices, a substitute, providing forgiveness and reconciliation for God's people. And instead of barring the entrance to the tabernacle, cherubim actually adorned all of the walls of the tabernacle. And then a pair of solid gold cherubim were on top of what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Which was the symbol of God's presence and the place where he met with his people. So we have east, this side. We have the tree of life. We have the the fire. We have the cherubim. So even as God barred his disobedient children from the garden, he was pointing forward to a provision of a place where mankind could again approach God. I'm sure many of us know that the tabernacle and then later the temple, the, the kind of the, the, the structure that was built after that, was only a place of restricted access. Yes, it was a place to approach God, but you could only come so far to God and no more. The people could only come into the courtyard. 
The priests could only, were the only ones who could come right into the, the holy place. The high priest was the only one who could come to the most holy place, the inner room. And only once a year, and only with a blood sacrifice. So the tabernacle and the temple was only a start to begin to restore what Adam and Eve lost. But they were only a shadow of what was to come. They were only pointing forward to something better. And it was only when Jesus died on the cross that that way was finally and fully open to us. When Jesus died at the moment, the curtain of the temple, the, the curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place, the inner room where God dwelt. That, that curtain of the temple was torn in, to, in two from top to bottom. God's act of opening up the way fully to God. Declaring that our sins were paid for in full. And the way to God's intimate presence was open. And so today, for us, if we have faith in Jesus, then we are no longer barred from God's presence with a flaming sword and cherubim. We don't need to keep away in fear and shame. Instead, we have this wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this. We have confidence. Confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. That is his body. Today we can come right into the most intimate presence of God. Boldly, confidently, with joy, with assurance. Because of what Jesus has done. And we can also look forward to the day when Jesus will come back for us and take us to be with him forever in his Father's house where he promises this, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So yes, God applied the law to Adam and Eve and justly ordered them out of the garden. But God's eternal plan was always to provide a way back. So that broken people could experience life in all of its fullness. So that sinful people could be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that guilty people could be welcomed back into fellowship with Him. This is the hope that Jesus offers to all who put their trust in Him. Because He was willing to be punished for us.